This is a bit of an unusual Sunday for us. There's a, a nationwide pandemic going on. That's why I'm preaching to a smaller number today, staff and elders and friends. And we've asked the rest of our church to watch online. But I want to speak for a moment about the coronavirus and what it has produced. Our president has invoked the Stafford Act to call for a state of national emergency. Schools in Kentucky and Tennessee are closed for at least two weeks. Every major business conference in the states has been canceled. The NBA playoffs delayed. NHL suspended its season. Uh, Major League Baseball, PGA Tour, Broadway productions, concerts, all postponed. There was even a coronavirus conference that closed because of the coronavirus. We would all much rather be watching March Madness than dealing with this viral madness. However, this pandemic can help to expose areas where you place your hope and joy, your functional idols. This will be a difficult season for you if you're a workaholic or addicted to certain entertainments or can't handle things being out of your control. Honestly, it's hitting one of my idols really hard, and I don't like it, but I, but I know I need it. I'm, I'm so selfish and short-sighted that I think we're going to lose ground by not meeting collectively as a church. And it's right after we broke ground on a new building, but God, through the coronavirus, is discipling me to put my hope in the one who came up out of the ground to live forevermore. You see, it's possible to have God bound up with your agenda, but your agenda be the real God. Our idol worship is, is more subtle than what we see in today's text, but it's still there. See, a virus in the body can reveal a virus in the soul. If God, could, if God gave you a divine eraser, what would you erase? Erase what the media frenzy is doing to your business because some of you are going to lose a lot of money. If I had a divine eraser, I would erase probably this Sunday. I would erase the coronavirus. If only God would give us his eraser. On the flip side, this could be a wonderful time to develop healthy home rhythms. Uh, spending family time, developing intense time in the word, rediscovering your spouse, uh, doing creative gospel witness. You see someone with a, with a bottle of Germex, a massive one, and they're bathing in it. And you say, you know what Germex will not remove? Your sin. Yeah, just, just be creative. <laughs> don't, don't, don't think, how can I hunker down? Think, how can I serve people? In other words, wash your hands for sure, but then wash feet. One last point about this pandemic before doing background work in Daniel. The coronavirus is spreading over the earth. And it's a reminder that one day the glory of the Lord will spread over the entire earth. I mean, have we not witnessed that in Daniel? In Daniel chapter 1, we have a 28-year-old Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he launches a terrorist strike on Jerusalem. He carts King Jehoiakim off in chains. He plunders God's temple and brings the bounty to his heathen temple to show that 
his gods are superior to Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar was a great military leader, so he knew it was impossible to take a whole nation of Israel captive, so he scoops out the cream of the crop, the best and the brightest that Israeli education and genes had to offer, robbing Israel of its future leaders. Most Bible historians agree that somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 young teenage boys were kidnapped, forced to walk 900 miles, hungry, exhausted, and fearful. And the narrator focuses in on four of the 60 boys. King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to call him King Nebi. King Nebi's goal was to assimilate the POWs completely into the culture. Think like Babylonians, behave like Babylonians, believe like Babylonians. It was a systematic indoctrination. Change their names, change their diets, change their educational curriculum. And so Babylon launches a three-year crash course to train these boys to lead the next group of POWs that are coming in. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a reoccurring frightening dream, and it rocks him. In the dream, he sees a monster, worse than anything in a horror movie, scarier than Michael Myers. This gigantic mutant freak always looks the same. It has a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, midsection of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of clay. And suddenly a stone comes out of nowhere and topples the villain. The stone begins to grow and eventually engulfs the whole earth. And the stone turns out to be more terrifying than the cruel beast. And you'll remember Daniel reveals and then interprets the dream to King Nebi, and he says... You in the Babylonian kingdom, you are the head of gold. But you will be replaced by another kingdom, a kingdom of silver. And God will destroy your kingdom and all other kingdoms and set up his global, worldwide kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, in between chapters 2 and 3, Nebuchadnezzar leads a second siege on the city of Jerusalem. And he takes 10,000 captives. Now, we arrive in Daniel chapter 3. This is the first chapter that does not give a precise chronological time marker. Most scholars agree that it is roughly 16 to 18 years after chapter 2. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been in Babylon for 20 years now. And they're in their early to mid-30s. They're my age. And they've excelled in their training and now they're leading a group of POWs from their homeland. The third and final siege has also taken place, and so Jerusalem and the temple are now in smoldering ashes. And I want you to watch King Nebuchadnezzar's next move. Notice verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up on the, in the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the world's greatest architects. So he builds this gargantuan statue, the height of a nine-story building. It's, it's nine feet wide. It probably looked like a, like a missile on a launching pad, perhaps something like the Washington Monument. It was, it was huge. The picture you see is called the Lady of the Rockies. It's in Montana. It's the exact same height as the one that King Nebi built. And notice how it towers over the people standing beside it. And now an interesting question is, in whose image was this statue in our text designed? 
Some believe it was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's not unheard of for political leaders to do this even today. This particular photo is around, you'll see, 200 North Koreans bowing before the bronze image of the eternal president, King Il-sung, and his successor, Kim Jong-il. Turkmenistan unveiled a 69-foot grandiose gold leaf statue of the country's president carrying a dove and riding on a horse. He's a king riding on a horse to establish a kingdom. If you know anything about the Bible, this is copyright infringement. In Iraq, this was the statue of Saddam Hussein until it was uh, eventually toppled by tying chains around its neck and pulling it down. Some of you who were involved in his disposal and this image being brought down may not be aware that Saddam actually believed he was Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. Now, how come these things are happening? Because kings and kingdoms change, but people do not. Other scholars who do not believe it was King Nebuchadnezzar's image, they say they believe it was a statue of Marduk. Archaeologists have actually found an inscription in the ruins of Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar's coronation speech. And Nebuchadnezzar said this at his coronation. To Marduk, my lord, I am the prince, your favorite, the creature of your hand. You have created me and trusted me with dominion over all people. By your command, merciful Marduk, may the temple which I have built endure for all time. So it could have been a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It could have been a statue of Marduk. The third option is it could be a statue of Nabu. Bow before Nabu and his servant emperor named after him Nebuchadnezzar. We know historically how the Babylonians viewed gods. The gods were active in the world but not visible. And so the idol made the god visible. The idol was not God, but since it represented God, it was endued with God's aura. We know elaborate ceremonies of bathing and feeding statues that took place and it showed the awe with which these physical objects were approached. We don't know what this image represented, but we absolutely know what King Nebuchadnezzar was saying. The image was plated in gold. Some say it was solid gold. That would have been utterly prohibitive in terms of economics as well as a horrendous problem to construct and move around. So it was, it was gold-plated from head to toe. Do you remember in, in chapter 2, God said, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold? Then he will be replaced by a kingdom of silver? So thinking of the previous vision 18 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar says, I will not be replaced by another kingdom. You need to understand that this, is, this image was effectively Nebuchadnezzar's challenge to the prophecy of Daniel. This king will not wait for his dynasty to be toppled. He challenges the God of heaven. He sets up his own statue entirely of gold and certainly no feet of clay. Interestingly, he sets up the image in the plain of Dura where people built long ago the Tower of Babel. They had said then, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Genesis 11, 4. And that same pride drives King Nebuchadnezzar to make a name for himself. Man, with his ambitions and ego, is often impressed by what God can build. 
God, on the other hand, is not. Archaeologists have since discovered in this exact plane a brick structure, 45 feet long on each side and 20 feet high, a structure they believe served as a pedestal for something huge, although whatever it was has long since disappeared. No surprise that the bricks were left behind and the gold disappeared. Notice in verse 2, the king gathers the who's who, the movers and the shakers, the leading dignitaries, the, the satraps, equivalent of the famous public celebrities, uh, prefects. These were your military commanders, the leaders in the Pentagon. Uh, governors, these are like your state governors. Treasurers, these are your Fortune 500 CEOs, your CFOs of the nation. Uh, judges, these are your leaders of smaller provinces. Think uh, mayors, justices, these are your law bearers. Here, here's your Supreme Court justices. Magistrates, think of the United Nations representatives. And finally, notice in the text it says all the officials. This term has legal and executive authority and probably refers to those we would understand as sheriffs and policemen. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered many nations, each with its own culture and language. And the danger is very real that revolutions could break out and his empire disintegrate. So the king needs something that will solidify unity. He needs a concrete demonstration of the loyalty of all these diverse peoples. We know historically that he was very successful in expanding his empire, but not everything went smoothly. In the year 495 BC, he had to suppress a rebellion in Babylon. He also had to make a trip to his western provinces to collect tribute from his vassal just to keep things calm. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want his empire to break up. He wants to unify them under a common objective. So in verse 4, notice what the scripture says. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Apparently, King Nebuchadnezzar had a, a royal orchestra. And in the orchestra, there were both wind and string instruments, instruments with both high sounds and low sounds. You had trumpets and trombones, tubas and baritones, drums and cymbals. You even have bagpipes, so the Scots showed up. And notice the author's constant repetition of the instruments in verse 5. And then again in verse 10, he keeps repeating the names over and over and over again. It's almost comical. I'm pretty sure it's written by a guy at Guitar Center. He just seems enthralled by all these instruments. And then the command continues in verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. This entire event is the demonic equivalent of a Billy Graham crusade. Great and emotional music is to accompany the moment of dedication, adding a powerful and emotional psychological element to the service. The altar call is given, but he says, you don't, you don't have to come down. There's not enough room. Just bow down where you are. Everyone's assembled. They're out in the parade grounds, eating hors d'oeuvres, drinking royal punch. The herald suddenly stands, and he announces that the royal symphony is prepared to play a brand new composition in honor of his royal highness and his gold statue. The statue was so brilliantly reflecting the sunlight that you could barely look at it. That's not a problem. 
Royal Herald says, because you're not supposed to look at it. You're supposed to bow down before it. Verse 7 says, everyone fell down and worshipped the golden image. Now this verse gives us Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. As his eyes scan the plain of Dura, he watches a sea of 3,000 people bowing in unison. The text reveals there were three Jewish men who apparently did not bow down. And let me just take a sidebar here and answer a commonly asked question. Where, where was Daniel? Now we're certain that he didn't bow down with the other Jewish captives. It's not like these three stood and, and Daniel didn't. Daniel might have been with the other members of the king's cabinet working off-site. Remember, all this happened so fast, the entire chapter took place in one day. These three men resisted. But how? The book of Daniel is a piece of resistance literature. It shows you there's a proper way to resist government. In fact, Daniel 3 is a political drama with three mid-level government officials who would not bend under the political pressure. And then notice verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. The phrase maliciously accused the Jews literally translated is they ate their pieces. They, they chowed down on them. They ate their lunch. They sunk their teeth into them. These were fellow professional colleagues, wise men, who hated to see these gifted foreigners rise to prominence so quickly. Then in verses 9 through 12, they have a conversation with the king. They are, they are tattletales, narcs, whistleblowers, snitches. Oh, king, the slaves, the important hostages, the, the, the foreigners, the POWs that you made our superiors, they aren't bowing down, and it really eats at us, and it's, we think it should eat at you. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the news. Megalomaniacs are never satisfied with anything less than Everybody, period. He was an incredibly insecure man, only surrounding himself with people that endlessly praise him. Notice verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. He says, I can't have my leaders of, of my POWs not bowing down. This, this could cause a revolt. And so he's speaking to them, and at this moment, King Nebi is struck with a big heart. He says, I'll tell you what, since you have administrative rank, I'll let bygones be bygones, and I'll start up the music again, and, and then you bow down. And I can imagine those tattletale wise men standing nearby thinking to themselves, man, we thought we had them. Where in the world did this second chance come from? And notice the response in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image you have set up. This is one of the most heroic responses in redemptive history upholding the truth and the teeth of tyranny and the very jaws of death. They say, we're not fair-weather fans of God. The God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else, else you might cook up, O king. It's interesting because even the great Martin Luther asked for a night to pray and think when he was commanded to recant of his faith in Christ. 
These guys don't need a night. These guys don't need a day. These guys don't need a minute. They respond and say, we will not. It could be said of them what was said at the grave of the reformer John Knox. They feared the face of man. They feared the face of no man because they had learned to live in the fear of the Lord. Notice verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, notice the expression of his face changed. He was so angry, his face is distorted. That's the verb. It was distorted. And notice how favor is fickle. Just two chapters ago, these young men were being praised, but not here. The punishment of burning by fire was quite common in the ancient world. Jeremiah names two people whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Whatever God creates, Satan imitates. Nebuchadnezzar created a counterfeit hell, a fiery furnace. And you ask, did he just construct it right there on the spot? No. You needed a furnace to melt the gold. You needed a furnace to form the bricks. You needed a furnace to build this image. So the furnace was there. Why heat it seven times hotter? If you wanted to torture someone, you would turn the heat down to prolong it. You heat it up seven times hotter just means it's less trauma. It doesn't make sense. But anger is often irrational. We know from history and the help of archaeology that this was a smelting furnace, a large structure with a large lid on the rooftop through which materials were deposited. And there was a large opening down below a few feet off the ground for extracting the fired bricks. There, there was a ramp usually made of earth leading up to the top opening of the roof. They added fuel to the fire dumping in pitch and tar and all kinds of combustibles to make it flame with greater fury. Now, if you're an Israelite reading the story, at this point, you're biting your nails. Notice verse 20. And Nebuchadnezzar ordered some of the mighty men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Up that ramp, these three men went. Picture them standing above, viewing the raging flames seeing the glowings of its heat, knowing that they are about to suffer. And then they were thrown in like logs on a fire. The opening at ground level provided a front row seat for the king to watch these rebels roast. Verse 21 actually narrates, narrates the clothing these three men are wearing. They, they were thrown in fully dressed with their robes, trousers, and, and turbans. The mighty men throwing them into the smelting furnace died instantly. Not, not in the furnace, but just outside of it. Uh, you, you may have noticed when you open up an oven that you're immediately hit with a wave of hot air. Well, that's how these men died. And then notice verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. Let's just stop here for a moment. Kings don't arise in haste. It's undignified. But he's arising in haste. Notice as verse 24 continues. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, it's, it's true, O king. He answered and said to them, but I see four men unbound 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I used to, I used to be a volunteer fireman before I went off to college. And I remember firemen telling me stories of when they pulled people out of the fire. And one in particular, he was telling me, he went into, he went into this, he went into this home that was on fire for a while and they, you know, they said it was no hope, but he saw a lady there and so he just frantically grabbed her legs and, and when he grabbed her legs to try to pull, the skin came right off of her bones. That should be happening here. Instead, these three men are walking, not looking for an exit. They're just patiently waiting and enjoying each other's company. The fire did not hurt them, but notice it did snap their bonds. They felt a heaven of joy while they were suffering a hell of pain. Notice that God doesn't deliver them from the fire, but in the fire. They were delivered while standing in the flames. Now, who was the fourth man in the fire? It could have been an angel. The phrase, a son of the gods, is in the plural form, and that's the correct translation. King Nebi didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, the son of God, but he did believe, as all the Babylonians did, that many of their gods had sons. And so by saying this, he's simply saying that the fourth man looks divine. So the fourth man could have been an angel, or it could have been an Old Testament Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Jesus, before Jesus, was clothed in flesh. There's really no way to be certain about if it was an angel or Christ. I, I tend to lean towards it being Christ. Either way, God was present with them, whether through an angel or his Son. Either way, it is God with us in the fire. And then notice verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. What's interesting is when they came out of the fire, there was no third-degree burns, not a hair singed, not a scorch mark on their clothes. And you know how often you'll sit by a, a campfire when you come home and, and, and then... You smell like smoke. Well, verse 27 says, not even the smell of fire was on them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. King Nebuchadnezzar rightly attributes this to the God of Shadrach, the God of Meshach, the God of Abednego. And remember, their names were changed to represent Babylonian gods. So literally, the text here says, blessed be the God of Aku, the God of Nabu. You must realize that Nebuchadnezzar is impressed here, but he's not converted. His sinful heart has been shaken, but not removed, renewed. I see nowhere in the text, and I have been studying Daniel 3 for a few weeks, I see nowhere in the text where Nebuchadnezzar wraps a rope around the statue's neck like they did around Saddam's image, and then he pulled it down and it tumbled. He didn't dismantle the monument. He likely just gave them a Jewish exception clause. You don't have to bow down anymore. 
Now that's the exposition. Let me give you four applications. Application number one, God doesn't start the fire, but often leads you to it. God did not okay Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, not for the destruction, not for the construction of the statue or the destruction of his followers. God didn't start the fire. Nebuchadnezzar did that. God didn't stoke the fire. Nebuchadnezzar did that. God did lead his children to the fire. As Christians, we realize things can get heated when we follow Christ. From time to time, someone will tell me, I trusted God and he didn't come through for me. So I left the faith. They wanted him to save their marriage and he didn't. They wanted him to save their child and he didn't. They wanted them to get him a job. That They wanted to be saved from that pain, that third degree burn, and God didn't. If your goal is comfort and ease, you will eventually walk away from Christ. Christianity doesn't insist upon continuous smiles, perpetual bubbling optimism, and, and never-ending spiritual highs. I, has it ever occurred to us that the promise of immediate and guaranteed comfort is actually the offer of Satan's gospel and not God's gospel? We serve God for himself and not for what we can get out of him. Think about this. God could have, God could have ended this entire scene completely differently. And, and might I say earlier, God could have snuffed out the furnace. He could have plugged up the instruments in the orchestra and, and then tipped over the statue with a big gust of wind. He could have done anything. I mean, he's obviously planning on performing some miracles a little later. But he let them get falsely accused. He let them feel the anger of an infuriated king. He let them get tied up. He let the soldiers turn the furnace into a raging inferno. He let them get carried up to that ramp. And he let them fall into that furnace. And God does the same thing for you and me. He doesn't eliminate the trial. Sometimes he allows it to be heated seven times hotter. The path of sorrow is well frequented beaten down and trodden by God's children. You are not physically fireproof. John 5, 7 says, Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. You will have financial fires, health fires, relationship fires. Satan will turn up the heat on your life. I read this week that the ancients fabled of the salamander that lived in the fire. The same can be said of the Christian without any fable whatsoever. We live in this fire. Application number two. God's promise is not to remove you from the fire, but to be present with you in the fire. If I hear this all the time. If, if anyone preaches this passage like, God will deliver you from your trouble. He will bring you out. That's, excuse my language, but there aren't any children with us today. That, that is rape of the passage. Every time I hear someone say, speak it into existence, or speak your deliverance into existence, or speak your coronavirus resistance into existence, speak your raise into existence, I hurt for the people who eat that spiritual garbage. You don't speak your destiny into existence. 
You surrender your destiny to the sovereign Lord of the universe. And, and sometimes these pastors and other professing Christians will quote the three guys in our text. When, when the three guys say, our God is able to deliver us out of your hand. Our God is able to deliver us out of your hand. Now that'll sell books. But the three men didn't stop there. They actually announced that God might, God might not get out his eraser. He might allow them to suffer. This wasn't doubt. It was the deepest kind of faith. The words they used were these. But if not. God can cure your cancer. God can bring your wayward child home. God can turn this false accusation around. God can save your marriage. God can. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he lets people burn in the fire, get eaten by lions, and die as a captured POW. So what is God's purpose with fire? Fire in the Bible always pictures either judgment or purification. A number of Bible scholars believe that the Apostle Peter when the Apostle Peter wrote 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that he was thinking of an event that happened centuries earlier. He was actually thinking of Daniel chapter 3. And, and here's what Peter said. The trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. A, a literal trial by fire. Peter teaches us that trials purify and strengthen our faith. The same fire that Satan wants to use to consume you, God will use to purify you. There are many metaphors in the Bible, and, and there's a lot of metaphors using fire. One of them is found in Isaiah 43, 2, and it says this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. The classic hymn, How Firm a Foundation, was written off of that verse, and by implication, the story in Daniel. Verse 3 of that hymn goes like this. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. And then I love verse four. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God will show you his power in all kinds of different ways through the course of your life, but you will experience his presence in a tangible way when you are in the fire. God doesn't eliminate the fire. He just joins you in it. Application number three. Learn to place your smaller, cooler fire into proper perspective. Some of you are going through fires now. How do you go through something and know it's turning you into gold instead of something else? 
The only way you can do that is realize that Jesus Christ was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. The, the only furnace that could actually truly burn you. You can sweat it out in your cooler, smaller furnace when you realize Jesus sweated for you in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what made him sweat? As Jonathan Edwards said, in the garden, Jesus had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he would be cast. He was brought to the roof of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Learn to place your smaller, cooler fires into proper perspective. The last application is this. You will either be delivered from death, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or through death, but you will be delivered. Let's just do a biblical theology here of angels and fire. Angels and a fiery furnace. Early in redemptive history, God sent his angel to deliver his people from, from Egyptian slavery. You remember that, Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. It's, it's interesting because Moses called Egypt the smeltering furnace. Those were the exact words. The smeltering furnace in Deuteronomy 4.20. So an angel delivered from a smeltering furnace, Exodus, Deuteronomy. Later, God promised to deliver his people from Babylonian exile which in Isaiah chapter 48 is called the furnace of affliction, literally another smeltering furnace. While Israel was still in exile, God sent his angel to save them from the smeltering furnace. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son to save us from the smeltering furnace of hell. On the cross, fathom this, on the cross, the fire of God's wrath burned to the core and blazed unchecked over Jesus Christ. And he, unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was entirely alone. There was no companion to share his burden and no angel sent to relieve his agony. He, he personally paid the price for my hell those six hours on the cross. You can say the same if you're a follower of Christ. Now fast forward even, even further throughout the redemptive history. Jesus said that at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send His angels. And they will collect out of His kingdom all evildoers and they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus actually calls hell the furnace of fire, a smeltering furnace in Matthew chapter 13. He will throw all that do wickedly in as stubble. For those of you who are constantly under the sound of the gospel yet still reject it, the furnace of divine wrath shall be heated seven times hotter. The one who experienced the ultimate fiery furnace will reign supreme over the eternal fiery furnace. I want you to let that sink in. The one who experienced the ultimate fiery furnace will reign supreme over the eternal fiery furnace. Hell doesn't belong to Satan. It belongs to Christ. 
See, there is a furnace in which men kindle. And then there is a furnace in which God kindles. The question is, what will happen to those who have remained faithful to God? Those who have refused to bow down to serve other gods? Those who have ran to Jesus Christ for salvation? What will happen to those? Or it's interesting, there's, there's another place in the Bible where it's, it's like a, a mirror scene of this scene in Daniel. But this other scene isn't in the book of Daniel, it's, it's in the book of Revelation. There's a, there's a whole horde of people, a mass of people, and they're all bowing down before one throne. There's even music from different types of instruments. There's a choir, an orchestra of angels singing, Worthy is the Lamb. And the ones bowing are the redeemed. You know what I love about these redeemed? They all just came from their respected fiery furnaces on earth. Yet not a hair singed, not a garment burned, and there's no smell of fire on them. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.